encouragement to one another. It's in Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 All right, speaking of 2008, uh, we moved, uh, my, Diana and I moved into our first house, my wife and I, uh, moved into our first house, uh, it was uh, February of 2008, and we uh, were in this little home and didn't have any kids at this time, and we, it was a Friday night, if I remember correctly, Friday or Saturday night, and we had a bunch of uh, kids over, we had been doing a Bible study, a bunch of uh, kind of teenage boys over at our house, uh, watching a movie on this weekend night. And we're watching this with a group of kids, and all of a sudden, like, on our windows, uh, we had them replaced eventually, but originally our windows, like, when the wind blew from the outside, like, our drapes would also blow on the inside. Uh, lots of little cracks in those windows. And all of a sudden, uh, the wind just starts ripping through the house in a way that was alarming to us. So we looked outside, as, as we do, as, as men oftentimes, like, danger. Oh, well, let's go see what's going on. So we look outside, and the sky is look, kind of looking super kind of creepy and eerie. And all of a sudden, I hear this siren, uh, and we lived right around the corner. I hear the siren that I've never heard before. And we realize there is something really bad going on weather-wise. So we cram these 10 or 12 people all into this little bitty bathroom, the only room without windows. And then about two minutes later, a tornado ripped through downtown Atlanta. Who was here in Atlanta in 2008 when that tornado came through? Incredibly alarming and scary. So that rips through Atlanta. It happens. It comes. There's very little warning that anyone had, even the you know meteorologists had. It kind of rips through Atlanta. I remember the NCAA basketball championship was going on at the dome, uh, and they were, like ripped a hole in the dome and it rips through Atlanta. And it felt like like six minutes later it was over. And so we walk outside. The wind has calmed down. We look out there, and it feels like the twilight zone. There are trees down. We live like on a pretty high part of the neighborhood, kind of see the whole neighborhood. Trees are down all over the place. The sky is this kind of eerie, like brownish orange. And there was a huge oak tree that fell directly, uh, not onto our house, between our house and the neighbor's, it fell directly onto my neighbor's house. The only thing that stopped it smashing uh, through one of the gentlemen that lived there was the top plate on the, on the, uh, on the wall. He was sitting in a, a recliner right below it, looked up, boom, tree right over his head. Thankfully, he was okay. But there was incredible damage all over the city. You see some pictures here. So that left is us. There's actually homes kind of right around us in the west side. Uh, this on the right is the Westin, which if you were in Atlanta, you remember that it blew out the windows in the Westin, and there were these kind of rounded windows that took like, it felt like 10 years to replace. Uh, I don't know what the deal with that was, but it took forever to replace. And so it was, you know, just it, it did an incredible amount of damage. And the two things that I remember from this is the first and foremost, people immediately after this happened were freaking out. I remember walking outside, and there's a tree down in front of, on Sunset, on the street we lived on. It went all the way across the street, and this guy in a van, he must have, you know, the tornado hit, he gets in his van, he's like, I'm going to go, you know, it's, I'm sure it was a dude, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to get in this van and go. And there, anywhere in the city, uh, when you live in these in-town neighborhoods, if you're, you know, in one spot, there's like 14 different ways to get out of the neighborhood, but for whatever reason, he saw this tree and was just like, I'm just, this is the way I'm going to go. Didn't turn around, no K-turn, no U-turn, just ran over this tree, just drug this tree all the way to the post office uh, at the, uh, on Sunset. <laughs> I just remember being like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not following that guy in the apocalypse here. 
And the second thing was that, so people were freaking out. And the second thing was that the damage lasted for a long time. Like I said with the West End, I mean, it was years until those windows, windows were replaced. But even in our neighborhood, we all rallied, rallied around each other, put tarps on the, on the roofs that needed to be um, covered up. Um, but it was sometimes months uh, or even you know, close to a year before the neighborhood kind of started healing back like it was before. And so this physical storm, uh, this tornado that ripped through Atlanta, caused a good bit of physical suffering. And, and not to minimize, uh, there may have been some other suffering um, that people experienced through that event, some other trauma through that event. But it was mainly physical suffering from the storm. However, in our lives, when we have storms, quote-unquote, that come into our lives... Though they may not cause trees to come down on our yard or windows to be blown out, they oftentimes have just as large of a personal impact, the suffering of a personal impact on us in similar ways. And we don't know exactly here with Timothy, like, like Leon said last week, we don't know exactly the suffering that Timothy is going through, but we do know that it's real and it's impacting him in a pretty dire fashion. 2 Timothy, this entire epistle is a bold, clear call for perseverance in trusting God, trusting God in the gospel in spite of suffering. Paul, the writer of this letter, is calling on his young co-worker to continue to keep going in the fight of faith even as Paul approaches the end of his life and even as Timothy endures whatever is going on in his life. So the main idea here in this sermon is that suffering, just like that storm in 08, is disorienting to us. But grace, which Paul talks about in this epistle, in this passage in particular, reorients us back to truth. So the key themes that Pastor Matt hit on last week, some theories on what the experience, uh, what the suffering was that Timothy was experiencing, um, was that first and foremost was that he was a young man. So young in in that day, um, kind of for leadership, even is a little different than today. He was probably in his 40s, but the people that were mentoring him that he looked up to uh, were probably 20 years older than him. And he was being looked down upon based upon his youthfulness. Pastor Mac explained to us that he came from a mixed marriage, so he wasn't Jewish enough for the Jews or Greek enough for the Greeks. He felt like he never fit in. Pastor Mac also said, which I had never thought about this, that he was a disciple of a prisoner, um, and the people who are opposed to the gospel uh, were vehemently opposed to Timothy, both be, both because they looked at him being like, "Oh, you're the guy that you're supposed to, we're supposed to." Uh, you're, you're following and we're supposed to follow you. He's in prison. Why would we ever follow you? And then others are just opposed to the gospel because that's how the world works sometimes. And I imagine what he's feeling in this, in this world he's living in, in this time, he's feeling like we all go, like we all do when we go through those seasons of suffering in our lives. I want you to think about the times in your life, and it could be right, you're right smack in the middle of it. Something has happened to you that is out of your control. I mean, Timothy doesn't, didn't control that he wasn't, you know, that he was born uh, to a, a Jewish parent and a Greek parent. He didn't, can't control the fact that his leader, his mentor is in jail. He can't control, clearly can't control how old he is. Like these things that he's being, he's having suffering, uh, he's, he's being looked down upon because of he has no control, can't fix those things. And think about the times in your life 
where you have gone through intense seasons of suffering, and it's usually, almost always, things that you do not have control over. And the feelings that you feel in those moments are feeling defeated, or deflated, discouraged, and disoriented. And I think that the reality is that that disorientation in particular, when we're going through suffering, comes from the fact that we are face-to-face with the reality that we are simply not in charge. I mean, yes, there's the loss that you're experiencing. That's incredibly hard. But the discouragement, ultimately, for Timothy and for us, is that life, whatever the circumstance is for you and I, is going in in a way that we are not okay with, and we certainly would not choose. Timothy would, if he could choose, he would not be enduring the suffering he's enduring. If you have gone through suffering in your life, or when you've gone through suffering in your life, I'm sure if there was a kind of control-alt-delete to restart, you would love to do that. But the reality is that we cannot and don't have that option. We're coming up on a year ago, uh, if you've been at church for a while, uh, or at least a year or so, a year ago, uh, around this time, was when uh, one of my kids uh, was in the hospital for an extended period of time. My daughter Emma, uh, it was about a year, right at a year ago now, uh, started experiencing some kind of intense symptoms, and we didn't know what was going on. We actually called some folks at the church who are doctors. They helped us realize we should take her to the ER And we took her to the ER on a Saturday morning, and we did not leave the hospital for about eight weeks after that. She was hospitalized with a brain infection of some kind. The medical word is an encephalitis, encephalitis, and it was incredibly scary. The doctors couldn't figure out what was causing her incredibly intense uh, issues, um, and they kept trying idea after idea after idea for a solution. We have four kids, and they're a stair-step. They're all two years apart. And at this time, Emma, she's our third third kid. At that time and forever, she will be, uh, how that works. Um, But at that time, she was seven years old, and we sat in the hospital, and we didn't leave, like I said, for eight weeks. And it's hard to even accurately describe or communicate how desperate we were for answers. Diane and I were staying up half the night. We would, you know, be in the do- we'd meet with the doctors and have these meetings every morning as they do their rounds. They come up with a new theory um, and they try, you know, try to, you know, see if they run some more tests, see if that's what's going on. That wouldn't be it. They'd run some more tests the next day. That wouldn't be it. I mean, Diane and I are up half the night scouring the internet. Uh, if you've ever like web indeed, like there's like a dark, dark hole of that if your kid's in the hospital. Um, and so we are looking at everything from medical journals to random blogs uh, that moms and dads have written from you know 10 or 15 years ago. And at one point, we sat in a room with all the medical people on Emma's stat on Emma's team. This is you know, 15 of the, like, the smartest people I will ever be in a room with. This is the rheumatologist, which I didn't even know what that was until uh, we were in the hospital. Rheumatologist, uh, the ICU doctors, the infectious disease doctors, the neurologists, uh, the pediatricians, and then kind of the, uh, the other kind of uh, staff members that assisted them. Most of them were here in Atlanta. We even actually had a few that consulted in because it was such a unique case that we were dealing with. Consulted them from Stanford uh, and from the Children's Hospital up in Baltimore. And this is about four weeks into our journey. We've tried, they've tried so many things. Uh, she is intubated, uh, is sedated, medically sedated at this point, because uh, she can't be awake uh, without the symptoms kind of taking over uh, and being, being unsafe. And these people sat in a room with us at Eggleston over uh, on the east side of town, sat in a room with us, and I didn't know there were these kind of conference rooms in the ICU. 
we come in, we barely slept for about a month at this point, and these doctors looked at us and they said, we want to be honest with you. We will keep trying, but we need you to know that we don't know what's wrong with your daughter and we don't know how to fix it. And if we don't fix it, you need to know that your seven-year-old may not ever be safe to come home again. And one of the doctors, showing an incredible amount of humility, the rheumatologist, looked at me square in the eyes and said, just so we're clear, if you come up with more ideas, I would love to hear them. And at that point, I both felt like, thank you for your humility. I, this is incredibly desperate at this point that you are asking the pastor to come up with ideas for you. Um, and I looked at Diane afterwards and I was like, babe, like, if he wants to talk about like theories on who wrote Hebrews, I'm all in. Like, I, all in. But gosh, it is incredibly deflating for that man to even look at me and say, like, we're out of options. So our doctor, I mean, our daughter continued to be intubated and medically sedated, and they kept running test after test. And the end of this story is that she's doing incredibly well. But at this point, a month, we're probably four, four and a half weeks in. A few days after that meeting, they had another idea. They ran some tests. They kind of said, okay, this could be it. So they woke her up, uh, kind of gave her, gave her the medicine that they thought would help, and everything was going super well uh, for like half an hour to an hour. And then about an hour into it, and it was my shift, Diane and I would, uh, would trade out every day at noon. Uh, it was my, my turn. It was that afternoon, okay, my shift, and she was doing incredibly well, kind of woke up. She's back to herself. If you have not seen your daughter you know, in three weeks or just seen her but have not talked to her, it's just an it incredibly emotional feeling. She's awake for about an hour, and then all of a sudden she starts to spiral downhill again. Doctors all come in, the full team, they call a code, she comes in, they all, they all come in, they get her back stable, and they have to sedate her again, and how that works is that, you know, they're there, they sedate her, they kind of stick around, and kind of slowly, one by one, kind of, kind of exit the room as they're called to other patients in the hospital. And so at the end of that, she's, you know, comfortable again, and, you know, safe, uh, safely sedated, and... I'm the only one in the room, and kind of how the room works, there's the bed, and there's a window, and there's this couch thing that is honestly incredibly comfortable after you've been in the hospital for six weeks that we would sleep on. And I remember sitting there, or standing there, and looking out the window, and I don't, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not super offended by cuss words, but it's just not part of my vocabulary usually. But I had gotten to the point where I was so sad and so desperate. I thought everybody had left the room. My daughter's, you know, asleep that I looked out the window and I just yelled the F word as, as loud as I could. And I felt this sense of, I was just incredibly overwhelmed. And then I felt the sense of like, oh, I'm, I know she can't hear me. She's sedated. But then I felt kind of sad and kind of bad that I said it in front of my seven-year-old. And I looked over and who I thought was gone, this sweet nurse was like four feet from my face. Um, <laughs> And her name's Sarah Emily, and she had become like a dear friend. Uh, if you're ever in the hospital for a long time, you just, they're like family by the time you end. But I remember looking over at Sarah Emily, and she's a believer. She goes to church in Midtown, looking, and she looked at me with this face of just like, it's okay to not be okay right now. And she ministered to me in that moment that I will never forget. But I look back at that moment in particular, and I realized like that was honestly where I broke in the process, 
And again, the end of this story is that Emma's doing incredibly well. They actually did figure out a kind of a, uh, a, uh, uh, some procedures that kind of got her back and kind of fixed the encephalitis. So she's doing incredibly well. But at that point, I realized that I hit my rock bottom. And it wasn't just because Emma was in the hospital. It was because I realized I can't control the outcome. Nobody has an answer to this. And despite all the late night, you know, Googling of encephalitis, I can't even help her. I felt incredibly helpless. So not only were we suffering, but we were suffering with no solution to it. It dawned on me that not only I can't fix her, I can't even get her to anyone that can fix her. It made me think, as I thought about this week, makes me think to the aftermath of the tornado, what really happened in all of us in that moment was that we were faced with our smallness, our mortality, our humanity. The tornado cannot be controlled by us. We felt incredibly vulnerable. And brothers and sisters, I, I think that's how you feel in those times of suffering whether it's health issues with you, with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, whether it's you've lost a job, you see your bank account starting to go from, you know, four grand to 3,500 to three grand to 2,500. You, you're trying your hardest. You cannot figure out another opportunity for work. Whatever it is, you realize I can't fix this and I feel incredibly vulnerable. That's Timothy in this passage and it's all of us in those seasons of discouragement. A friend of mine, a lady named Amy Joseph, wrote a wonderful article, it was actually years ago, about discouragement. She shared the following reasons for why suffering leads to such discouragement. The lies that we believe. She said, first off, that we believe the lie that God promises us a comfortable life. When we start to suffer... When our life is not what we hoped it would be, when we haven't married by the age that we wanted to marry, when we cannot have our children at the age we wanted to have our children, we don't have the jobs we wanted to have, the house we wanted to have, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, you're, you're dead in the square in the eyes of the lie that we all have believed that God promises us a comfortable life. It's nowhere in the scriptures. Amy writes in that article, when interruptions or tragedies or discomforts pop up in our lives, and they will until Christ returns, they can expose the insidious lie, insidious lie that God exists to give us easy lives. Brothers and sisters, open up that Bible. Read through it. There's not a promise in there. And if anything, it's the promise of the other that you will endure suffering. The second lie that we believe is that when we are going through those difficult times, that God should do things my way. If only he would text, this would be just fine. Like he had, he had run this by me to say, hey, Drew, like, you know, it's 2022. Here's what I, I'm thinking for 2023. Like, just let me know what you think about it. Like, maybe you've got some better ideas. Like, I just think, gosh, it would be so helpful if you would consult me on my life. But that just ain't how it works. He does not look at us and say, I don't know what to do. Please help me. He's saying, I know exactly what to do. And it's your job to trust me. 
The third thing that causes so much discouragement in our lives is that we, we think that God deserve, we deserve God to work on our timetable. Amy writes that discouragement results from gradual disappointments and hopes deferred. Let me read that again. Discouragement so often results from gradual disappointments and hopes deferred. Long waits, whether for clarity or spouse or opportunity, children or any other right desire, can make our souls irritable and sick. The reality is when we sat there a year ago in the midst of the suffering, I told Diane, I said, if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, I'm fine. I will get through this. It will, I will keep staking, taking steps down this tunnel as long as there's a light. But the reality is that even that, like God doesn't promise a light at the end of the tunnel. He promises a light when Christ comes back and makes all things new. Absolutely. But outside of that truth, you will endure suffering and you do not know if or when it will end. Those of you who have, who have lost loved ones, whether it's a spouse or a sibling or uh, a parent at an early age, you know that that suffering, like, yes, God will make all things right when Jesus comes back, but there's not necessarily a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not like they're coming back to life for you. So you have to do the work of sitting with the Lord and recognizing the lie that God should work on my timetable and recognizing, no, I trust you on your timetable. So the question we have to ask is, do we really believe that God loves us, that he's wise and he's working all things for our good? If we believe this, then we also affirm this incredibly, incredible, hard reality that when we get to heaven or when Christ comes back, whichever happens first, when you are looking at the suffering in your life, looking back at the suffering in your life, the reality is that when you come face to face with God, that he will not apologize for it. I was away about a month ago, six weeks ago, with some of the bishops in our denomination. And we were going through and studying, kind of looking over the last year. And this last year for the Henleys has been, our family has been incredibly hard. And he said, one of the bishops looked at me and said, looked at all of us, I felt like he was kind of looking at me, but looked at all of us and he said, I need you to know that no matter what the hardships are, that God is in control and he will not apologize for them. And I held it together in that meeting, but I told him the next day, I was like, but I just wanted to, I know you're right, but I wanted to throw my Bible right at your face. Like, it's incredibly hard. But the reality is that when that truth sinks in, that he's on his throne, that he's sovereign and good, then that, sink, then that truth sinks in. That's the only way we have a road forward. If we are constantly looking at God saying, if you should have just done this differently, if you could have done this differently, everything would have been better. You could fix this, but you're not, and I'm going to stay angry at you for the rest of my life. You will never heal from the suffering that you've gone through. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see this in the story of Joseph. My daughter and I just finished up Genesis. Uh, the seven-year-old, now eight-year-old, is at home. She's a really woman. If anything else that God did, she loves her Bible. And we read a chapter a day. And now we're going into Exodus. And I'm like, baby's going to get weird, but let's, do, let's go through it. 
We just wrapped up Genesis and talking about the story of Joseph. And the dude's life is turned upside down. He is beloved by his dad, kind of a little bit of an arrogant punk to his brothers. They sell him into slavery. God gives him the opportunity to work for this super important person. You're like, okay, cool. Like He went through this terrible thing, got sold into slavery, probably beaten, but now he's hanging out with this super important dude, Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife then falsely accuses him of coming on to her. He gets thrown into prison, so you're like, great. Like He's trying his best, and he gets screwed over again, or, or punked over again, and now he's thrown into prison, and then he's like there, and he's like, oh, all, you know, he's Two dudes have these weird dreams, and he's like, oh, I'll interpret those. The two dreamers, uh, the two guys with dreams, uh, one of them doesn't turn out so good, but the other one gets back into the kind of good graces, um, and he says, okay, remember me when you get there. And so Joseph's like, oh, I got my ticket out. This guy who I helped out, he's going to remember me. That dude, what does he do? Completely forgets. You know, two years later, he spent all this time in jail, and you're like, gosh, like, like Joseph, not perfect, but really does a lot of things right. A lot of things right. And his life just gets harder and harder and harder. And God will not look at Joseph, or has not looked at Joseph, when he got to, when he got to the, you know, the eternity with God and say, I'm really, it's really my fault. Like, I, I, I put a sticky note on the fridge. Like, I was supposed to tell that guy, like, make sure you remember, you know, to, that he helped you with that dream situation. Don't forget about Joseph. I just forgot. My bad. I'm sorry about that. God does not. Do that for Joseph and will not do it for us. But Joseph remains faithful to God, keeps trusting, keeps expecting God to work. And so we see in that story, and we see in 2 Timothy, how do we battle against the discouragement? How do we battle against the disorientation that comes with suffering? And we could have kind of a list of, you know, here's how to, how to be better at life, but that's not what Paul gives Timothy He gives these very simple words in the beginning of the chapter. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He just tells them to lean in to grace. Now, mercy and grace we are, are confusing, but they are different from each other. Mercy is the unmerited kindness of God, but grace is, is more than that, and that it is the power of God that comes to people that enables them to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. So mercy is just like you guys, you, 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 you know, you're treated better than your sins deserve. Grace is, is a power that comes to God's people. Paul, aware of the troubles for Timothy, lovingly calls him my child. He speaks truth to him, but he also is aware of the task at hand, and he tells him to be strong. But not just be strong, not just try harder. He says be strong by his connection to Christ, living in God's grace. Oftentimes with suffering, we go through these incredibly difficult times in our lives. We realize that the other 99% of our life, we say we believe these things that are true, but really it's not that hard. And then we hit those times of suffering and realize, like, I am out of options. It's kind of like when the, when the disciples are like, when Jesus is like, where, you know, are you going to leave me too? And they're like, bro, where else can we go? Like, when we hit those times of suffering, we look at the Lord and we say, I've got nothing else. I remember sitting in that hospital room, slamming my computer down, saying some more bad words, and saying, God, I do not know how to fix her. I have no options at this point. And at that point, it's almost like a transition 
could happen where he could look at me and said, okay, but you can trust me still. And that's what we're called to do in the grace that he's given. We see this in Acts 1.8 with the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you will receive the Holy Spirit in the power that has come unto you. God knows that service is hard. He encourages the disciples to wait until they are clothed with power from on high. Look back at Luke 24 if you don't believe me. And Paul isn't calling Timothy in this moment into some rush of adrenaline. He's calling him to realize the power that he already has in Jesus. The power that comes from being connected to Christ. And the deeper that sinks in, the more faithful we can be. And what does that look like? We have a couple examples that we're going to hit on. We're going to see from this chapter. The first is that we become like soldiers. Grace gives the strength that in the midst of suffering, we can stay engaged in the battle. The reality is that we, the calling that Paul gives to Timothy, he is saying without saying that the, the alternative to this, what we are so prone to or drawn to so often when we go through suffering is just a peace out from the fight. It's just too hard. And he uses a soldier because that guy's life, that woman's life is incredibly hard. Eating food that's rationed, sleeping on the ground at times, missing the comforts and pleasures of home, not knowing when they're going to make it back home, not knowing if they're going to make it back home. I'm sure I've never been in battle. There's a few of a few folks in this room that have that have uh, that have served uh, in the armed forces. It could probably talk about this more uh, more authoritatively than I can. I can, but the reality is that it has to come with so many doubts. Is this worth it? Should I have signed up for this? Am I ever going to get to see my kid's next birthday, uh, or, or you know any birthdays, but even more or less the next birthday that they have? And this doesn't mean that breaks and Sabbaths are not necessary, but we are absolutely, in the hardest times of our lives, called to remain engaged in the battle of following the Lord. So this looks like showing up to worship even when you're suffering. And this doesn't mean that you can't ever take a break from coming to church. We don't, we don't take roll or anything. But the reality is that when you are going through your hardest times, that God gives you the church to walk alongside. I can't tell you how many times during those eight weeks we would show up and the staff told me, like, took all my responsibilities away. They were so kind. And we would show up and we sat right there and we would just make it through the service. And then I'll never forget one Sunday. People were so kind because afterwards asking how Emma's doing when I, she, uh, I was sitting there, and I'll use kind of a prop today, sorry, but I would come up to, Rachel came up to me, and she just kind of grabbed my arm and led me out. She was like, you're not going to make it through this. And the reality was, like, we barely got here, but it was the, I mean, it was such a life, a breath of life for all of us as a family. And we show up with, sometimes it didn't even sing, but just hearing the voices of the saints, like, it keeps us going in those times of suffering. You engage in community. When you go through suffering, there is a part in all of us that wants to withdraw from people. But the reality is that you can't do that as a soldier and you can't do that as a Christian. There's sometimes where we don't, when we're going through the times of suffering, where we know that the Bible is true in our head, but we don't want to read it. We're called to continue to open it up. When the devil is feeding you lies during your suffering, 
the way that you combat those is through the words of Scripture. Even when you're struggling to hear from God, don't stop showing up to try to listen. And the second thing that he gives us here is that we act like athletes. Grace gives us the trust to follow God's commands. What was interesting about this, when, when I read this the first time, and he says, similar to anyone who competes as an athlete, I was like, cool, like, let's talk about, like, you know, being in the game, what is sports, I'm all in on this. And he goes, like, you follow the rules. And I was like, that is such a letdown from what I hoped we were going to talk about here. And in essence, what he's saying is that as an athlete, and we all know this, if we played any sort of sport, that there is a call to follow the rules. And I asked myself, why did he even put this in here? And the reality is, and then we go through these times of suffering, we are so drawn to start taking shortcuts to get relief. Sin never is more tempting than when you're going through those dark seasons of suffering. So when you go through those dark seasons of suffering, there is a draw, a draw from, the, from the evil one towards these lies of you can just get relief from this. We think about Christ when he was tempted in the desert. What does, what does the devil try to get him to do? He tries to get him to take shortcuts. And how does, how does Christ respond? He responds with truth and chooses the harder thing because it's good. And ultimately, how did he choose that? He chose it because he trusted the one that made the commands. So what does this look like? It means that we go back to grace in our times of suffering. Don't just try to, you know, try harder but be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And practically what this looks like is that we remember the grace that we've been given. There's not some special formula. There's not some kind of like potion that I kind of sprinkle on you as a pastor to get more grace. What it is, it's the normal means. It means that you're reading your Bible and you're you're remembering that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You remember the hope that we have in the resurrection. You worship and and say things that are true even when your heart doesn't feel it. And week in and week out, you take communion. We do this this as the center of our service, and it's not something that we will ever skip over at a Sunday at Redeemer because we think that there is such power in taking the sacrament. There's power in that we remember our sin. We confess it to the Lord. We remember that we are forgiven from our sin. We pass the peace in community to remind each other of the gospel. And you come down the center aisle, and we will take that cracker, dip in the juice, and place it in your hand. And when you take that, you are eating of the grace of the Father. You're remembering that he loves you enough that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sin. So no matter what you've gone through, he's gone through worse. And in the midst of your troubles... You can remember that if he loved me enough to die for me, he loves me in this moment right now. So take a moment and confess sin, and I'll lead us into the liturgy of communion.